Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you all for coming out on a, on a snowy evening uh, and um, for being here. It's, it's really wonderful to be involved with the Harvard graduate chapter of the Thomistic Institute and to be back at Harvard. I had a wonderful year here uh, many years ago now, so it's, yeah, just, uh, it's very beautiful to be back. And when I was here, I was working on a project on humility and the history of political thought that will probably take my whole life, which is good for humility, <laughs> to, to finish. And the work that I'll be sharing tonight, uh, I didn't do it while I was here, but the origins of that work were the year that I was here. So uh, very, very nice to be back to share some, uh, some work with you. Uh, so our topic is Seeking Peace in the City, Augustine and the Virtue of Humility. In Book 19 of The City of God, Augustine joins the classical philosophical debate about the summum bonum, the telos, or happiness, that humans seek, individually and in community. Augustine locates the summum bonum in peace. Peace, he says, is the tranquility of order, that after which all things seek. Not any peace can satisfy the human heart. However, but only peace in the eternal life or eternal life in peace, as he famously describes the summum bonum for humanity. This perfect peace is the peace of the heavenly city, which only God can grant. And yet this peace does not replace the peace, which can be better or worse, more or less just, that humans seek through politics and temporal life. How may peace be sought, found, and perfected? There's an adage that you've all probably heard. Uh, if you want peace, work for justice. If you want peace, work for justice. And this is surely true, but is it complete? We have, we work for justice, will that suffice for peace? Well, since this is a Thomistic Institute lecture, uh, we might take a cue from Thomas Aquinas before we turn to Augustine. In his Summa Theologiae, Aquinas places his treatment of peace under the virtue of charity. This is in the Supreme Pars of the Summa Theologiae. Charity, which is friendship between God and humanity, a gift of God that allows us to be friends of God and have God's love for our neighbor, so love for God and neighbor. 
For Aquinas, it is charity rather than justice that is most intrinsically linked to peace. Aquinas explains that charity unites, and as such, it builds peace and works for peace directly. Charity affects unity. It makes unity real. Justice also has a role to play, says Aquinas, but less directly. He, he says that it properly, it being justice, justice properly removes obstacles to peace, while charity perfects peace. Charity brings about peace and perfects it. So we might say, if you want peace, work for justice, and especially aim to live in love or charity. Here enter St. Augustine and the topic of our lecture. And Augustine would add, and if you want charity, welcome and cultivate humility. Humility for Augustine is the foundation of all the virtues. It is, and we could talk about this in question and answer, I won't be able to go into it, but I would argue it is for him a foundational form of natural right or justice according to human nature. Humility is, in a beautiful formulation of Augustine, from another work, not the city of God, he says, humility is the dwelling place of charity. Humility is where charity finds a home. To borrow another metaphor from Augustine, humility is the vessel where the honey of God's love finds a dwelling, a home. It finds room in a vessel. Humility cleans out the vessel after the vinegar of pride has been drained. (laughs) So humility makes room for and gives a, a dwelling place for charity. And charity is the substance, and I think Augustine would agree with this, of peace. A perfect peace, at any rate. So in this lecture, I'll give an account of Augustine's case for humility, specifically in the city of God, uh, with an overview of my recent book. And that book's title is Pride, Politics, and Humility in Augustine's City of God. This project has its roots in my first book, again, for the Thomistic aspect of, of tonight's lecture. First book was, as, as Amy kindly, uh, in her kind introduction, mentioned it's Aquinas, Aristotle, and the Promise of the Common Good. Uh, The chapter in that book that I learned the most from, uh, researching and writing, is on the virtue of magnanimity. And Aquinas' theory, unlike Aristotle's, for obvious and, and interesting reasons, posits that greatness of soul or magnanimity has an unlikely twin virtue. He'll call it a duplex virtus. There's a twofold virtue. It needs two, two components to, to really be virtuous. Magnanimity goes together with humility. Um, and, and I saw that my colleague Gary Anderson is coming out uh, soon. That will be phenomenal. He's, he's really great, a theologian from Notre Dame, to speak about uh, no mercy, no justice, no justice, no mercy, basically. Uh, well, for Aquinas, no virtuous humility, no virtuous magnanimity, greatness of soul. And Without at least the seeds, the beginnings of virtuous magnanimity, no virtuous humility. Upon reflection, this paradoxical pairing of acknowledged greatness and acknowledged littleness struck me as highly significant. It made me wonder why many modern political philosophers had rejected humility, transferring it, to paraphrase Hume, to the column of the vices. 
while others radically reconfigured it. Beginning to read scholarship on early modern political thought led me back to Augustine. It's noteworthy in contemporary history of political thought that the two major monographs, academic monographs, on humility and or pride in modern political thought begin from Augustine. They don't begin from an early modern thinker, but but each of them begins from Augustine and his account of humility and pride in the city of God. Um, And these are two books. One is by Julie Cooper and the other is by Christopher Brooke. They're both very, very good books uh, with a lot to recommend them. Um, But perhaps because of limited time, I'm pretty sure, um, they seek to recover Augustine's vision of humility from one or two books of the city of God, uh, which you may be aware has 22 books. So you have this large work. Uh, and they draw from chapters, usually, excuse me, book 14, and also somewhat from book 13, chiefly. They, they obviously will quote from other places. Uh, and those chapters deal with the fall of Adam and Eve and the original sin. So it's looking at pride and humility chiefly through the, the lens of sin and, and the primordial sin. And perhaps because of this limited textual basis, their accounts of Augustine on humility and pride seem incomplete, and in some respects perhaps misleading. Cooper, for instance, argues that Augustine's defense of humility leaves readers with rigid binaries or oppositions. Human agency or divine agency. You have to choose, God or man. (laughs) Who are the the meaningful actors? A or B, but not both, on, on her reading of Augustine. Pride or human initiative. So either we have superbia in Augustine's stance or we have scope for human activity and investigation, creativity. It's either or. Uh, And she, I think, reasonably thinks this is not a a good place to end. (laughs) She wants to move beyond Augustine, understood in this way. Brooke briefly acknowledges philosophic dimensions to Augustine's critique of pride. But his chief explanation appears a form of fideism. Augustine is a Christian, and scripture teaches against the Stoics that human sufficiency is pride and evil. So while appreciating a lot in these, very much, in these political philosophic histories, I return to Augustine's City of God convinced that there was much more to his account and defense of humility. I thought recovering a fuller, this fuller account could enrich political theory and the history of political thought. Humility and pride are central themes in the city of God, crucial to its inquiry and its argument. And again, we're dealing with a thousand-page-long book, more or less, uh, in its English translations. Uh, And so from the preface through book 22, this theme is key. It's crucial, right, from the beginning to end of the work. Indeed, in his preface, Augustine describes the aim of the city of God as he calls it, a long and arduous defense of the city of God against its detractors, as entailing a defense of humility's great excellence, which was a hard sell in late classical Rome, (laughs) a very hard sell in late classical Rome. Um, So here I'll uh, invite you to turn to your handout. Um, And and I'll begin, uh, actually, so here, imitating Brooke and Cooper, uh, with, I'll start with number two, which is, is a quote from book 14. In a remarkable way, 
There is in humility something which exalts the mind, and something in exaltation which abases it. And yet we see this theme already in the preface. So quotes one and three are from the preface to book one. And I, I take these, uh, I've given here the English from uh, Dyson's translation. Okay, so these, all these are from Dyson's translation, Cambridge, 1998. Augustine writes in his preface, I know what efforts are needed to persuade the proud. How great is that virtue of humility, which not by dint of any human loftiness, but by divine grace bestowed from on high, raises us above all the earthly pinnacles which sway in this inconstant age. Then down to three. The king and founder of the city of which we are resolved to speak has said, God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. But the swollen fancy of the proud spirited envies even this utterance, which belongs to God, and loves to hear the following words spoken in its own praise, quoting Virgil, to spare the humble and subdue the proud. Thus, where the nature of the work here undertaken requires us to say something of it, and as occasion arises, we must not pass over in silence the earthly city also, that city which, when it seeks mastery, is itself mastered by the lust for mastery, even though all the nations serve it. So that's how Augustine begins. At this point, it might help to say a little bit more about how Aquin, uh, excuse me, Augustine understands virtuous humility, humilitas in Latin. And unlike Aquinas, Augustine does not offer a succinct definition, uh, neither in the city of God nor in any other work that I've been able to locate. Um, but we can, uh, based on his use of the term, uh, we can understand a, a quite a bit of its meaning, I think. So we can say for Augustine that humility is an excellence or virtue by which human beings rightly and freely realize their dependence on God, their creator and redeemer, and their fundamental equality with their fellow human beings. Humility leads to and supports other virtues, including justice, charity, mercy, piety, and peace. Vicious pride, superbia in Latin, by contrast, rejects dependence on God and neighborly equality among humans. It seeks superiority and domination over others and inclines to arrogance, to breaches of justice, to civil strife, self-serving lies, and even war. Then a second note, which is on Augustine's mode of inquiry and writing in the city of God. This work is often described as a polemical work or a theological work. There, I think there, there are clearly elements of, of both of those. Um, but I'd like to suggest that it can help to understand his overarching method and interpret his argument by looking at it as a combination of rhetoric and classical dialectic. I think we might call it rhetorical dialectic or perhaps dialectical rhetoric. Augustine's own studies and career uh, before his conversion, ordination, and, and selection as bishop centered around oratory, the art of eloquence and persuasive speech. And yet he found sophistical rhetoric, which was most of the rhetoric in his day, lacking in substance, and he turned to philosophy for greater access to truth. 
The City of God, written towards the end of Augustine's life, and maybe 12 of the last 15 or so years of his life, is itself rhetorical, um, unabashedly so. How? Well, it aims at persuasion. Again, in the very preface, he says, it's going to be a hard thing, but I'm going to try to persuade the proud. How great is this virtue of humility? I'm going to try to give a persuasive defense of the city of God, such that people would want to be citizens of it. So there's, there's, a, there's an element of oratory in his intent, from, again, from the beginning to the end of this, this work. And yet persuasion for Augustine always must be with a view to leading others to truth and goodness. The aims of oratory are, are, are several, but they're oriented towards teaching truth. And Augustine, to this end, engages in what we could call dialectic, again, in a classical sense of the term, aiming to offer reasoned arguments to establish dialogue, beginning from shared knowledge or opinion, whether these are the opinions common in the culture or the, the city, or whether they're common among philosophers or certain philosophic schools, etc. Augustine's audience in the city of God, the readers he hopes to address, comprise, the audience comprises perplexed believers and non-believers alike, shaken by Rome's recent sack, educated by a common core of classics, and immersed in ancient proud culture. Augustine endeavors, whenever possible, to begin from Rome's and other ancient polities, civic experiences, history, culture, poetry, epic narratives, from commonly held views, past and present, as well as from definitions and arguments accepted by prestigious philosophers, Augustine aims to establish meaningful dialogue with non-Christian and Christian readers alike. This is one way in which I think his work can be a model, obviously not a simple sort of map it on, but in some important sense, a model today when these uh, sort of elite, quote-unquote, elite, ordinary, uh, religious, secular divides seem harder and harder to bridge. Augustine is aiming to bridge just those divides uh, in, in his own era. And he does this through rhetoric at the service of dialectic, uh, dialectic guiding uh, his rhetorical work. So the first segment of The City of God, um, and here, let me just back up a bit. My, my book is a little hard to summarize, um, which is good for humility. But why is that? Well, I was asking myself, why is that? Well, because it's a close textual commentary on the city of God. Right? So it's, uh, and especially through the lens of humility and pride, the arguments to that effect. And these are so rich and variegated uh, that it's, it's difficult to sum. But I'll try to hit some highlights of, of what I think Augustine is doing in his defense of humility against pride, following each segment of the city of God. Again, that means from, from books one through book 22 in broad, very broad strokes. And it's skipping a lot. So again, I look forward to question and answer and discussion. You can dive deeper where, where you'd like to. Um, so the first segment comprises books one through five, uh, where Augustine uh, engages in Roman political history uh, from the sack of Rome back to the pre-Christian historians in Rome and their accounts of the city's declines, successes, and failures. So at the, as the end of Augustine's preface indicates, one foothold for humility accessible to all humans, not just believers, 
is the misery and injustice caused by human pride. Okay, the, the, the misery that the lust for mastery. Here he borrows, Augustine's famous for this phrase, libido dominandi, the lust for mastery. Uh, and yet it's perhaps less recognized that this phrase comes from Sallust. So and, uh, it's, it's not Augustine's own. He's quite clear about this. This is from Sallust, a, a historian who he emphasizes, Augustine says, was noted for his veracity. Augustine, Augustine loves Sallust and, and employs him quite freely. So libido dominandi shows us pride at, at, at its worst in politics. Augustine cannot appeal effectively as a first step in his culture, and perhaps in any culture, to the natural goodness of humility for humans. Um, but he can, he thinks, begin to demonstrate uh, to his fellow citizens that when the political community seeks mastery, it is itself mastered by the lust for mastery, even though all the nations serve it. Pride fails to comprise a reliable foundation for human freedom, justice, and happiness. Augustine recalls for his readers, especially those with a liberal education, what they already know from experience, history, and the writings of philosophic statesmen, but may never have articulated or acknowledged fully. And someone persuaded by Sallust, Augustine, and others of the misery caused in Roman history by vicious pride uh, can begin then to perhaps be open to humility as a positive value. So Augustine begins from a critique of pride in politics. Books one through five begin with the blindness Augustine finds caused by pride. Um, and here he, these are many and varied. Uh, he, he speaks of ungrateful pride, and that's a, a phrase, as the cause that, um, of some of his fellow citizens who are not Christians, not recognizing that Christianity uh, made the evils of the sack of Rome somewhat less bad. Um, some of the, uh, uh, a good number of the, uh, the invaders were Aryan Christians, and many of them led people to the, the churches where they, they would not be assaulted or, or killed, etc. And he said, this is something that hasn't been seen, <laughs> you know, that, that people led uh, the enemy to safety, uh, and that Christ and Christ's mercy had a lot to do with that. So uh, why are you blaming Christianity for causing the sack when it actually made things better? Then it's still terrible, but it could have been even worse. Uh, from there, uh, Augustine goes on to argue that, I think that superbia was at the bottom, vicious pride of people who were not compassionate to those who suffered sexual assault or other evils in the sack. Uh, and then he goes to Roman history, uh, showing material and moral damage that libido dominandi has caused, arguing for moderation and humanity. Um, and then he critiques imperial grandeur as an end to itself, um, in itself, and argues that uh, superior happiness is to be had through moderation and humility for rulers and rules alike. So that, in a very brief nutshell, is the first segment, books one through five. In the second major segment of The City of God, books 6 through 10, Augustine's prosecution of pride and defensive humility moved from the political to the philosophic realm. The bridge between the two is Rome's civil religion, as treated by leading political figures and philosophic writers such as Varro and Seneca. 
Augustine surveys and offers appreciative critiques of these figures' lives and works in Books 6 and 7. Just as in Books 1 through 5, Augustine presents pride as opposed to truth and nature, so he argues in Books 6 and 7 that Roman civil religion reinforced the lies of proud civic elites, consigning the common people to ignorance and error in religious matters and to servitude and oppression in politics. So, for example, you could see on your handout a quote. This is actually from Book 4, but it picks up a a major trope of Books 6 and 7. This is quote Passage 5. Augustine writes, Supposedly prudent and wise men have made it their business to deceive the people in matters of religion. Men who are princes, not indeed righteous princes, but men like the demons, have persuaded the people in the name of religion to accept as true those things they know to be false. They've done this in order to bind men more tightly in civil society so that they might likewise possess them as subjects. So the deception of civil religion, Augustine sees bound up with political uh, unjust inequalities and oppression, forms of tyranny. Varro, for one, attempted to reinterpret Roman polytheistic religion as an analogy of nature and and of God as the soul of the world. Augustine opines and and aims to demonstrate through his own... Augustine takes Varro very seriously and gives a a very detailed analysis of some of his writings. Uh, And Augustine opines and, and aims to show that Varro knew that this wasn't true. Uh, but that he was aiming to ennoble as much of the old-time religion as possible while reinforcing the mos maiorum, the custom of the ancients, uh, the, the mores of ancient Rome and its political order. Uh, and uh, yes, here, here we can look at passage number four on the handout. This is from book six. Varro says that if he himself were founding a new city, he would have written according to the rule of nature. But since he found himself to be a member of an old one, he could do nothing but follow its custom. Navarro is shackled by custom, uh, but yet he at least tries to ennoble the content of the civil religion through natural philosophic explanations. Okay, and, and at the same time, Augustine argues, Varro pointed the way to philosophic or natural theology for readers capable of this inquiry. Seneca, by contrast, lambasted the gods of the city as fictitious, a motley crew, generally unworthy of emulation. Uh, And yet Seneca worshipped the gods publicly and encouraged others to do so, or at least did not discourage them. In these stances, especially that of Seneca, Augustine finds evidence of superbia, of false or excessive forms of humility as well, leading people to lower themselves to honor divinities and rulers to whom they are equal or superior by nature. And here in Book 7, Augustine briefly notes a conclusion he will elaborate later, that only Christ's radical humility can free humans efficaciously from proud tyranny, be it political or intellectual or religious. And and here we uh, we can look at the handout. This is quote number six. 
From there, the, the demons, uh, which is another long story, again, for the question and answer if you're, if you're interested. From the demons' most cruel and ungodly dominion, man is set free when he believes in him who, to raise man up, offered an example of humility as great as the pride by which they fell. So, Moving on now to books 8 through 10, we reach the first peak of Augustine's prosecution of pride and defense of humility. Uh, And we can prepare for it by the quote that's number 7 on the handout. This is from one of Augustine's sermons. Do you wish to grasp the exaltedness of God? Grasp first the humility of God. And, and this quote is directed to Augustine's religious congregation, but he has, he has a similar message for the great philosophers of his, of his day. So book eight's opening chapters, uh, in, in these books, Augustine is engaging Platonic natural theology, essentially. Uh, and book eight's opening chapters offer readers a condensed history of philosophy, focusing on Socrates, Plato, and the Platonist of of later eras. What Nietzsche would later term the problem of Socrates frames Book 8, highlighting a certain philosophic modesty, perhaps even humility, although Augustine doesn't use the term, on the part of the contentious old Athenian. When we consider Books 8 through 10 as a whole segment, just again on Platonic philosophic theology, It's the trope, however, of the biblical and philosophic peregrinus, the wanderer or or pilgrim, the traveler, the stranger in search of wisdom, God, right worship, that forms the bookends of the trio of books. Augustine's philosophic pilgrim par excellence, evincing the humility of one who cannot find the fulfillment of philosophy in his own uh, city, is none other than Plato, who left Athens for a time and traveled far in search of deeper and broader wisdom. To a lesser but still significant extent for Augustine, the philosophic pilgrim Porphyry of Tyre, a staunchly anti-Christian Platonist, who may have had a part in stoking up and encouraging some of the persecutions of Christians. He was looped into the imperial court. And yet it's striking that Augustine has quite a bit of respect for Porphyry, probably learned quite a bit from Porphyry. And Porphyry, likewise, he was from Tyre, but he traveled to Plotinus's philosophic school um, and rejected the gods of his native Chaldea in his philosophic writing, uh, analogous to the faith and deeds of the patriarch Abraham. And I don't think it's accidental that Augustine begins from Plato and his pilgrimage in Book 8, uh, and speaks of, of Plato as a peregrinus, a traveler, and then speaks of Abraham's uh, pilgrimage or his going forth his, uh, from his native land at the close of Book 10. Um, and the pilgrim framework here prepares us for the history of the city of God humbly on pilgrimage in this world towards its heavenly rest, which Augustine will chronicle in the next segment. And uh, yeah, just I think there's so much that goes on in books eight through ten, uh, but what? And I, I'll just give you two quotes and comment on them briefly, uh, just, and then we'll need to move on. Uh, but these are quotes eight and nine on the handout, both dealing with Porphyry. And again, keep in mind how 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 um, 
I mean, I, I don't think it's a big exaggeration to say that Porphyry was, was uh, rabidly anti-Christian, <laughs> really, uh, and uh, at least in some, of his, in some of his writings and activity. And yet Augustine has a lot, again, has many positive things to say about him. He, in the passage that's number eight on the handout, the context is a work of Porphyry where he's instructing an Egyptian sage about true religion and moving his religion closer philosophically to truth. And Augustine has, again, this, this uh, words of praise for Porphyry. He said that he's not sure this is the right interpretation, but this is how he thinks probably the passage should be read in Porphyry's work. Porphyry did not proudly assume the authority of a teacher. Rather, in order to direct the Egyptians' mind to these things, truer religion, and the errors in, in the Egyptians' own religion, Porphyry assumed the character of an inquirer and the humility of one desiring to learn. So there's a certain pedagogical humility here. The humility of one who either is or is willing to play the role for a good reason, to lead another to truth, not to deceive the other, to play the role of the inquirer, even when one is a great philosopher. Uh, so there we see a certain humility in Porphyry. Uh, but then we see uh, the more famous passages on Porphyry include this one. This is quote number nine. Porphyry held Christ in contempt because of the flesh he, Christ, took in order to become a sacrifice for our cleansing. It was because of his pride that Porphyry did not understand this great mystery. The pride which our true and glorious Redeemer brought low by his own humility. So, again, a lot there we can, can discuss later. Um, so now we move on with Augustine to the second major portion of his City of God. We look in broad strokes, books 1 through 10, our uh, critique of uh, the gods of, of the city of Rome as leading to happiness in this life, books 1 through 5, and the next life, books 6 through 10. Now Augustine is going to dive into the origin, progress, and ends of the two cities, especially the city of God or the heavenly city on pilgrimage. Uh, and uh, as, he, as he begins this investigation in books 11 and 12, Augustine delves into what he openly calls most difficult questions, right? most difficult questions, uh, and, and there are many, <laughs> concerning creation, freedom, the metaphysics of good and evil, of humility and pride. In book 11, Augustine introduces a refrain that he will repeat throughout the city of the city of the segment of the city of God, that all beings and all natures in the world are good, created for good by an all-good God. Drawing from Genesis, Plato's Timaeus, and later Platonic writings, Augustine concludes that, quote, there is nothing at all which is evil by nature. There's nothing at all which is evil by nature. So pride as evil is not, is not natural. It's, it's, um, it does not exist by nature. Um, and here we can, we can look at a quote uh, from Book 11, which is number 10 on the handout. Divine providence admonishes us not to condemn things thoughtlessly, but rather to inquire with diligence into the utility of things, 
Okay, no, humility does not impede diligent inquiry. <laughs> it should spark it, right? Here, divine providence admonishes us. If it's hard to see, look harder <laughs> what the goodness, even useful good, besides metaphysical good. The concealment of utility is a means of either exercising our humility or overcoming our pride. For there is nothing at all which is evil by nature, and evil is a name for nothing other than the absence of good. But evil is not natural, good is natural. Referring to a passage from Timaeus, Augustine writes that, quote, the most righteous reason for the creation of the world was that good works might be made by a good God. In this regard, Plato for Augustine seems to echo Genesis 1, that God beheld all he had made and found it good. The happiness of created beings endowed with intelligence and free choice, namely angels and human beings, depends on their living in a response of love and gratitude towards their creator, and through union with him to grow towards the fullness of being, light, and love. To refuse to acknowledge one's dependence on the good God for one's own good, and to refuse to be happy through participating together with one's fellows in God's happiness, is to reject one's own deepest longing and shut oneself out voluntarily from fulfillment. Humility is the expression of a real acknowledged dependence. I'm borrowing a phrase from, from Alistair McIntyre, acknowledged dependence. It's the recognition that we're not self-creators, although we are responsible for responding rightly to the creator and other creatures. Humility reflects a rightly ordered love of one's being and excellence for the glory of God and in communion with one's fellow creatures. Humility thus comprises an openness to love the fullness of being for its own sake and for the sake of all one's fellows. To seek to cleave, to seek and cleave to being is happiness, to reject it is misery, for being is good, and non-being where there should be being is evil. In Book 12, Augustine goes on to probe the fall of some of the angels as related in Scripture. He acknowledges that this is a great mystery, and yet offers an explanation. Uh, and here, rather than quote Augustine, I'll quote C.S. Lewis, who has just a delightful version of Augustine. With, I, I suppose it might come from Augustine, I'm not sure, uh, but it, that's exactly Augustine's thought. Um, in the Screwtape Letters, Lewis's ravenously affectionate uncle Screwtape, who is a, single, uh, a senior devil, uh, instructing his nephew, a junior devil, in the art of tempting human beings, um, he gives his, his nephew a philosophy class, and he says, and this is, there's a, an ellipsis in here, but this is part of, of the, part of the passage. The whole philosophy of hell rests on the recognition of the axiom that my good is my good and your good is your good. What one gains, another loses. There's no common good. There's no participated good. There's your good or my good or this person's good. That's it. Uh, and put in Augustine la Augustine's language, the angels who fell did so because they chose to prefer their own private, finite good to the common, as in shareable, without diminishment, infinite good, which is God. They proudly endeavored to be their own origin, telos, and happiness, contrary to love and true wisdom. And they sought dominion or domination over other intelligent beings instead of fellowship with them. 
Moving then into books 13 and 14, which uh, deal with uh, Adam and Eve's sin and the death that ensued from it. Uh, These books complete Augustine's inquiry into the origins of the two cities. Augustine writes, and this is at the beginning of book 13, Now that we have dealt with the most difficult questions concerning the origin of our world and the beginning of the human race, the proper order of the discussion requires that we discuss the fall of the first man, or rather of the first human beings, and the origin and propagation of human death. Augustine's defense of humility against pride in this pair of books aims to reveal humility as fertile soil for life, abundant life, while pride pollutes the ground and withers life at its roots. Um, And uh, readers familiar with scripture may recall Moses' exhortation, this is from Deuteronomy, to the people of Israel. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life, therefore, that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and cleaving to him. For this means life to you. And uh, I, this was prepared long before uh, today, and today I went to Mass at St. Paul's, and the first reading was this. <laughs> I'm like, nice omen, um, or, or nice coincidence, however we look at it. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, this, this key choice is uh, humility leads to cleaving to God, leads to life. Pride leads to separation from God, which leads, leads to death. For the sake of his readers, pagans as well as Christians, Augustine intertwines experiential, philosophic, and theological lines of reasoning in his discussion of death. And and, um, humility, he emphasizes, undergirds what we might term being towards life, bodily and spiritual. And this is the creator's benevolent intent for human existence. Pride perverts this orientation, spawning in its stead being towards death. Uh, And here we can look at the handouts, passages 12 and 13. Um, The first is from uh, On True Religion. No life is evil as life, but only as it tends to death. Life knows no death, save wickedness, nequitia, which derives its name from nothingness, nequitquam. And then this, this next passage is from City of God 14. Forsake God and to exist in oneself is not immediately to lose all being, but it is to come closer to nothingness. It is good to lift up your hearts, not to oneself, however, which is pride, but to the Lord. This is obedience, which can belong only to the humble. Now we move to the penultimate segment of the City of God, books 15 to 18. Here Augustine invites readers to see pride and humility in action and in exemplars throughout history. Books 15 through 18 give pride of place to the histories contained in sacred scripture while still referring to secular histories and legend. These books offer readers an array of exemplars of humility and pride and the opportunity to reflect on these qualities in individual lives and in communities. And here I'll just, uh, the handout uh, contains three, three passages which show some of these exemplars that from, uh, these are all from, from sacred history. 
uh, at, at least uh, from the Bible, biblical exemplars. Um, so the, the first is Nimrod, who Augustine says in his ungodly pride began to build a tower against the Lord. And he's described as a mighty hunter, which Augustine says this must mean a deceiver, an oppressor, a slayer. Right? So pride goes together with, with uh, uh, rising up against God through building a tower of Babel and also oppressing one's fellows. Uh, uh, so we have Nimrod, who's at, at, that, at the head of that charge, <laughs> um, exemplar of pride. And then uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and Augustine doesn't specifically call Abraham and Sarah humble, uh, but he does emphasize their laughter, their capacity to wonder at a gift of God that was well beyond their power, which I think really exemplifies humility. Uh, and Abraham, Augustine writes, Abraham gave him the name Isaac, which means laughter. For when this son was promised to him, his father laughed with astonished joy. I think only a humble person can laugh with astonished joy. can easily laugh with astonished joy. And indeed, when Isaac was born and given that name, Sarah said, God had made, has made me to laugh so that all that hear may laugh with me. And we see a, this laughter is a common good. It's to be shared by all that hear. Uh, and then lastly, David, and, and perhaps our a very important political exemplar, who Augustine writes, uh, he's, his sins were overcome by a piety so great and a penitence of such wholesome humility. And here, David, uh, David, the description of David echoes Augustine's description of Theodosius. These are rulers who made serious errors, very bad errors, <laughs> um, sinned badly, and yet they did penance and, and repented. So uh, an exemplar of, of political leaders who can recognize wrongdoing and, and repent. All right. Um, so in this history, Augustine emphasizes anew that the human return from evil to good depends in a radical way on grace. And at the same time, his narrative underscores the roles accorded by providence to human agency in cooperating with the gift of grace for one's own welfare and the good of others. Human agency is part and parcel of the divine designs and working of divine agency. Humility doesn't impede men and women from being, in truth, God's co-workers, responsible agents. And now we move to the few concluding remarks uh, with the end of the city of God in books 19 to 22. And here we, we come back a full circle to the question of peace. Augustine here presents pride as a formidable but not invincible foe of just peace and equality among humans. Pride prevents people from embarking on the path to true happiness, humanity summum bonum, which again is he describes as peace in eternal life or eternal life in peace. I think I will not read the passages, but just in the interest of time for, for Q&A. But there, I will just mention, I'll just read a couple of portions of them. So in uh, quote 17, this is from book 19, Augustine writes uh, that, uh, he says, he thinks all people are seeking some form of peace, but not all forms of peace are good or equally good or just. And he writes, 
Pride hates a fellowship of equality under God and wishes to impose its own dominion on equals in place of God's rule. Therefore, it hates the just peace of God and loves its own unjust peace, but it cannot help loving peace of some kind or another. For no vice is so entirely contrary to nature as to destroy even the last vestiges of nature. Uh, And then I'll read the the quote in uh, number 18. The peace of the city, again, this is from book 19. The peace of the city is an ordered concord with respect to command and obedience of the citizens. And the peace of the heavenly city is a perfectly ordered and perfectly harmonious fellowship in the enjoyment of God and of one another in God. And I think uh, that that phrase to enjoyment, this is a little aside, but I think a significant one. Notice the phrase, the enjoyment of one another in God. Um, there's many contemporary readers of Augustine will argue, oh, yeah, it's only about enjoying God. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's also enjoying one another in God. Um, we're not, uh, yeah, that, I think that that's significant. The peace of all things lies in the tranquility of order, and order is the disposition of equal and unequal things so as to give each its proper place. Notice, notice that. It's a, a hints of justice, disposition of equal and unequal, where each has its proper place. The end to pride, um, as, as impeding the summum bona, emerges in Augustine's narrative as participation. Free and willing participation in God's being, wisdom, and love. Crucial to this participation are the recognition of humanity's creaturely status and the rejection of the pull towards towards autarky or a false sense of self-sufficiency. Only, he writes, in accepting happiness and peace humbly as gifts of God, common goods rather than private property, is real res publica possible. Through superbia, by contrast, human community is formed through domination, deception, and oppression. We see forms of imperial rule striving for universality by force, fear, flattery, fraud. The peace of such regimes forms a veneer over violence and corruption. It falls short of healing people's and polities deep wounds. And here we can read the last quote of the handout. In the heavenly city, then, there will be freedom of will, one freedom for all, an individual and indivisible in each. That city will be redeemed from all evil and filled with every good thing, constant in its enjoyment of the happiness of eternal rejoicing, forgetting offenses and forgetting punishments. Then we shall be still and know that he is God, that he is what we ourselves desired to be when we fell away from him and listened to the words of the tempter, you shall be as gods. And so forsook God, who would have made us gods, not by forsaking him, but by participating in him. Only by participation in God's life, being, and wisdom, in God's love, can human life be fulfilled and human society be complete. Augustine endeavors thus to bring his readers to desire and cling to this participation until it is perfected in the heavenly city's eternal peace and life. And in this argument, once again, Augustine endeavors to begin from arguments accessible to human reason, from the philosophic debate over the sunum bonum. 
As faith and reason indicate, Augustine argues, pride cannot bring one to recognize or attain happiness, understood as true lasting peace. The greatness it promises turns out to be empty, puffing up rather than building up. Humility, by contrast, can clear one's vision to recognize true good, true peace, true res publica, and to embark on the long pilgrimage to attain it, open to the gifts of philosophy, revelation, and grace. Along the way, humility can support forms of earthly peace that politics establishes, while allowing citizens to hope with courage and patience for the perfectly just fulfilling peace in eternal life. Thank you. Yes. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I was really curious about, um, I think it was the ninth quotation about the idea of Jesus being humble. Like, is, does Augustine think that Jesus's humility is the same sort of thing as ours? Because, like, we recognize that we're, like, sinners and imperfect and self-sufficient, and Jesus actually was those things. How does that work? Okay, no, that's fantastic. Um, And that that question, that's uh, one that I'm not confident that I have a great answer to, but I will do my best. So I I think, um, so, uh, okay. So on one level, Christ's humility is an exemplar that far exceeds our capacity, right? So, and, and you have here, in that passage where Augustine said, you wish to grasp the exaltedness of God, grasp first the humility of God. How do we see that most perfectly in Jesus, right? In the, um, the, the kenosis, the emptying, it, without ceasing to be God, taking on a human nature. Um, so, uh, and yet, um, Christ's humility is one that he's, once he's taken on that human nature, this is, he says, as Augustine has another passage where he says, Christ is, is God, here I'm paraphrasing, but Christ is God and man, right? God our goal, man our way. And as a human being, Christ is, as he, having our human nature, Christ is our way. And Christ's humility of um, giving his own life, right? Taking on, a, a, taking on our nature and, and giving, uh, giving his own life Recognizing that in his humanity, he he ha- he is creaturely. At his human nature is created, right? So there's this really deep mystery, and and I think in his humanity, while we obviously we, we're not going to attain the perfect humility of Christ, it is a real model, despite his not well, despite isn't quite the right word, but even with his divinity, he's he's a real model. Does does that sound plausible or still like? Not, not likely. That's not very plausible. Okay. Thank you. Um, does Augustine like mention anything like how we can acquire uh, habits of um, being more humble in real context? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he think that's um, one one way that he he gives some examples? Um, yeah, and they're, they're, these are some of the reasons why I love the book, The City of God. And they're these little gems. It's huge and it's sprawling, but they're, they're real gems in there, I think. And um, one of them, to answer your question, is 
of the, the act of asking for forgiveness, like again, recognizing that we offend people, that we, we hurt people, uh, and as well as offending God. And, um, and there's, there's, um, and that we need each other's help. So Augustine has a really beautiful passage that I wish I could read to you, but uh, in more than one place. But in one place especially, he talks about the Lord's Prayer, the, the Our Father. He's like, you know, um, is there anybody who thinks that he or she doesn't need to say many times a day, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? And he says, not a truly great person would say, oh, I don't need to say that prayer. That, Augustine says, that's not a truly great person. That's someone puffed up with pride. Like, again, so humility and greatness are compatible. Um, but humility uh, and um, Recognizing that we also, the act of, of asking others help and trying to help others, um, so the interdependency. Augustine, there's, there's a really beautiful passage where Augustine, um, and I, I can't recall if this is, I think it's, it's somewhere in books 20 through 22, and I don't remember exactly where, but it, Augustine speaks of people who are saved not chiefly and, and made holy, not, not just by their own virtue, but because they ask holy people for help and they, they did kind things for them and they asked them to remember them. So again, there's a humility of realizing like, I'm not self-sufficient. Um, I need help from others. And, and what's especially beautiful for me about that passage is he quotes a similar passage from one of Virgil's writings where some of the souls in the land of the blessed are there, you know, chiefly because they did kind deeds for very virtuous people who remembered them later. Uh, so, um, sort of, uh, yeah. Th- those are those are a couple that come to mind. Yeah, Augustine is pretty big on, on acknowledging error and asking for forgiveness. Um, I have a question from one of the later quotes that you um, have here about the the fact that all men like seek peace in some some way. So, what's the nature? of the peace, I guess, that people seek outside of God? Like, what is the, or like the self-peace or the one that the demons are seeking? Okay, so um, the, so Augustine's, yeah, so peace has the tranquility of order, he thinks, all all seek. Um, The demons would like a peace of everyone basically worshiping them, treating them as if they were gods. Uh, and honoring them. Uh, he, Augustine sees a similar dynamic in, the, in the, the worst excesses in politics, so forms of tyranny where, uh, and not just forms of tyranny, but like the, the tendency of the political community to set itself, itself up as a sort of, you know, Augustine says, the Romans should have just been worshipping. Why weren't they just worshipping victory? <laughs> Some, you know, they worship victory, why not empire? Like, you know, they're, they're really sort of setting themselves up there, they're, their community. Um, for but things are much more complex in, in ordinary political societies and, and their, their peace. So there he says that um, peace is, is a result of a sort of compromise or a concord of wills. And it's it's a result of um, uh, yeah, uh, people uh, agree to will and to cooperate in a certain way to order their society and have a certain tranquility. 
And Augustine thinks that the civil tranquility is very important, uh, so long as it doesn't require, as, as, so long as the concord doesn't require people to commit sins, you know, against God or neighbor. Uh, and so, um, some examples are, uh, the Romans, their peace early on, the way Augustine describes it throughout the city of God, was one seeking freedom more than anything else. They loved freedom. They loved liberty. And the great, you know, the great strength of the early Roman Republic grew out of that. Uh, as time went on, there, that, that love of liberty, uh, sort of, uh, perhaps got excessive or, uh, once satiated was displaced by a love for domination and then that, you know, with that, the snowballing of empire. So, um, so Augustine argues that earthly peace, that they can be better or worse, more or less just, never perfectly just. Um, and, and that earthly peace or temporal peace is a noble goal. Uh, and, and it's also very good to try to make it better, <laughs> uh, but also acknowledging that there are limits. And I, I think that that's also, there's a certain, I don't see it as a pessimism per se. I think it's, it's a, a moderate um, set of expectations of, of what, we, what we can hope for. It's not, and it doesn't, it's not an amoral or neutral space. Politics is very moral space, uh, but it's, it's limited in its possibilities because we need concord and we need agreement of wills. Um, that kind of get at. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So, um, I'm wondering uh, whether you see any connections between Augustine's account of humility and that of Stephanus, right? So, that kind of uh, mind not tending to higher things. So, you say it's kind of a, uh, uh, it's, it's a moderation of the mind expecting higher things. Do you think that's completely separate account or mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, and I was thinking about that earlier and really soon. Um, so, at least as, as I recall Aquinas' account of humility, it's, um, it's a moderation in sort of hope for our own excellence, right? It, it's a, a virtue that, that, um, that, uh, yeah, there's, I think, uh, Trying to recall, it's it's under the the virtues dealing with temperance for Aquinas, and um, yeah, I think I think for I, I think Augustine's humility. Uh, well, I here as you know, I'm, I'm a little tentative. It's been a while since I've read the Aquinas, so I'm not sure about. But my sense is that Aquinas Augustine's humility is even more radical or even more foundational a virtue. Although Aquinas has very like glowing things to say about humility, he quotes another father of the church who writes that whoever gathers the virtue without humility gathers straw against the wind, and then it's all going to blow away. So Aquinas also, but Aquinas's I think definition is is much more um, is much more um, I tend to say it's sort of precise. And uh, I want to say narrow, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but I think it's uh, Aquinas is trying to get out what's very specific as he understands it. And for Augustine, uh, I think uh, 
I think, yeah. I, I, my, my sense is that I, I want to go, I want to go back to Seth and do some reading of Aquinas on humility again, because it's been a long time. What do you think, though, Hayden? I, I think it makes sense, right? That's, yeah. that's a, what Elson seems like a more foundational version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As he, as he says, in comes more interested in emphasizing what's distinctive about mm-hmm. this branch of yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. We shall see, though. Do some more work. I'll let you know if I find something different. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering um, if the um, idea of civic republicanism, like that, seems to be coming through mm-hmm. a lot of what you said. Um, like, kind of, um, is it, there's, there's a close link between um, uh, peace and uh, freedom, freedom um, of of everyone within the community as. Uh, reflected by the structure of the state and the way mm-hmm. the, 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 the polity kind of is structured and comes together and functions. So I was wondering um, how much emphasis Augustine puts on like civic participation, civic virtue, whether he's in that Aristotelian school of um, like civic and political participation being fundamental mm-hmm. to him flourishing or whether he doesn't so much take his thought in that direction. Um, yeah, that, that's another great question that I need to think some more about. Um, I think, so, for I, Augustine emphasizes, well, I think, um, yeah. So, for Augustine, again, he's writing at sort of towards the, the twilight of an, a long imperial period, right, where participation was severely limited. Uh, and so uh, that's again the importance of rhetoric was wasn't so much it wasn't speaking in an assembly right it was arguing a case before a magistrate or a representative of the emperor the emperor himself if you got up to where Augustine um, got up there so I think um, Augustine has another passage which is if I recall correctly back in book five and Augustine writes there that if humans were always just, political communities would have been small. Which is also interesting that this usual politics is about sin. But then there are these other passages where even absent sin, there would have been communities, and they would have been small, living in neighborly concord with, with others. So Augustine, I th- he doesn't have the same emphasis on uh, yeah, that active citizenship, but what he does have is an emphasis on equality, on a fundamental equality by nature. And uh, there's, there's another passage where Augustine, that, okay, this is uh, another tangent, but it will come back to your question, uh, that Augustine is often thought of as, as not really caring about the regime type. Right? As he has this passage, the, the famous slash infamous passage, where Augustine writes, well, Given that human life is so short, what difference does it really make under whose rule we live? Um, and sometimes it's translated under what rule we live, which sounds like what difference does the government form of government make or the regime? Um, as long as the official, as long as it doesn't force us to sin, like what difference does it matter? Because we're we're out of here pretty quickly. That's <laughs> pretty short life. Um, and so often then Augustine, is, and, and this passage is quoted willy-nilly as, as saying, well, Augustine doesn't really care about regimes uh, at all. He doesn't think it matters. And, uh, but then if you read, this is one short chapter. It's the very beginning. If you read the rest of the chapters, the, 
surprise, surprise, you see, he does care. He says, well, you know, what difference really did it make, you know, when the peoples were free or when they were conquered by Rome, um, especially if Rome had initially taken the step it took much later, which is giving a broad grant of citizenship. It gave people citizen rights. And he's referring to the Edict of Caracalla, which gave most of the free men in the empire citizenship. It was rather late. And it was past the participatory stage, right, of Roman Rome, well after that. But Augustine there, and, and, and so I think, I think he does think that citizenship matters. Now, how participatory that is, is going to depend probably on the size of your, of your community and its structure. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't think he's exactly a civic Republican, but I think he's got something of that spirit deep down. And it's, he doesn't, he's not living in a world with political forms where, where that could be um, really a viable reality, but it's, it's definitely there. And another thing that he emphasizes about uh, the peace and eternal life and eternal life and peace or the life of the citizens of the heavenly city is uh, there. So there's, there's a king in that city, but all the citizens are reigning together with the king. So he picks up on the scriptural trope of uh, the saints reigning with Christ. Uh, so they're act, it's active. It's, it's not simply being ruled, but it's participating in rule, which is, I think, really interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm moving back all the way, I think, to the first quotation, uh, which talks about the efforts that are needed to persuade the crowd. <laughs> um, and I guess, what can Augustine hope for? Right? If he's giving a defense of the Christians to the pagans of the time, but if he's calling for humility, um, for him, that humility looks like a conversion, um, right? And that one to, uh, to a real, deep uh, Christian faith. Is that what he's hoping for for the pagans? Is he just, because you have this kind of, you have this really interesting, like he's trying to show a natural defense, why we need humility, why pride is going to lead us astray. Mm-hmm. But is there a humility without God? Uh, if not, then do we all have, then it's his goal to try and show them that God has to be present for there to really be a common good. Yeah, I think ultimately, yes. I mean, I think that, that, that's, that that's correct. Um, at the same time, he's going to show how, like, nature, as he, he argues, uh, that, that human nature is, I, we're, we, we're not self-created. We didn't make ourselves. And, and that's the beginning, I think, of us, of us in our current state, and even Augustine's times of, of groping, like Augustine's own experience of like groping, looking, trying to find that that creator, and then trying to accept um, that that religion. Um, so yes, I think his his key goal is ultimately um, to show. I think he's, there's some things that he thinks reason can remove obstacles and elucidate, and he's going to start from those, both historical and philosophic. Uh, and, uh, but then for the, for the perfection of, of, um, of peace and the fulfillment of humility, yeah, I think he's quite clear. We, we need grace. Right? We, need, we need grace. And uh, they think that's readily, they think that's, it, yeah, it's, uh, let's say, it. Augustine clearly thinks that there's some form of predestination. Yeah. 
at the same time, he writes in such a way, he's like, so don't, don't delay, come on in. I mean, so I, it's like, again, you see this like abundance of grace, and it's not like, oh, I hope that you're one of the few lucky ones. He's like, no, hurry up, come on in, <laughs> come in. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but he's, he does so in such a way that he, he will go as far as he can, removing obstacles or, or um, buttressing scriptural uh, and, and graced claims and, and arguments with, with reasoned experiential philosophic parallels. Uh, I think, again, one thing that really struck me was doing word searches in the city of God, and uh, the term nature is used much more often than grace in this particular work. And I don't think that that means Augustine thinks grace doesn't matter. I think grace, grace is critical. But he's, he's really thinking deeply about what is humanity, what's, what, is, um, what, does it mean, what does it mean to be human. And I think trying to make a case that humility uh, corresponds to something in our nature, and uh, including a longing, uh, that, that pride, although it, it certainly seems so natural for us humans, the vicious forms of pride, you know, kind of nice feelings about your kids, being proud of your kids or something, but like vicious pride, uh, wanting to dominate others, wanting to be exceptional and above others uh, for its own sake, uh, uh, that, that there's something profoundly human in, in, humili in, uh, in humility. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.